Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump declaring himself president today, or short of that, demanding a do-over election based on the latest MAGA Republican talking point, Hunter Biden's laptop. Joining us is Dr. Alan Francis, a professor emeritus and former chair of psychiatry and behavioral science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference work, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, a psychiatrist analyzes the age of Trump, now out in an updated paperback version. We'll discuss whether Trump has lost it or his message on his Truth Social platform is Trump's latest ploy to manipulate his followers with a distraction from his criminal exposure over the misuse of classified documents or another appeal in the ongoing fleecing of the MAGA flock for donations. Then we'll look into the origins of the current MAGA Republican radicalism with its rejection of democratic norms and embrace of violence and speak with Nicole Hammer an associate research scholar with the Obama Presidency Oral History Project at Columbia University, a political historian specializing in media, conservatism, and the far right. She's the author of Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media and the Transformation of American Politics, and is also the co-founder and co-editor of Made by History, the historical analysis, analysis section of the Washington Post, and she co-hosts the weekly podcast Past, Present, and the latest book out today is Partisans, the conservative revolutionaries who remade American politics in the 1990s. Then finally, we will assess the Ukrainian offensive underway in the South to liberate Russian control, Kherson, and speak with Douglas London, a retired senior CIA operations officer and professor at Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies. Over the course of his 34 years in the CIA's clandestine service, almost 17 of which were in the foreign field as a recruiter and an agent handler. He served in the Middle East, South and Central Asia, and Africa, including three assignments as Chief of Station, the President's Senior Intelligence Officer at Post, and Chief of Base in a South Asian conflict zone. He's the author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence, and we will discuss the unprecedented situation in which questions loom over a former president of the United States about the apparent hold Putin has over him, and for what purpose did he steal classified documents. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Dr. Alan Francis, a professor emeritus and former chair of psychiatry and behavioral science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference work, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, a psychiatrist analyzes the age of Trump, now out in an updated paperback version. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Alan Francis. Ian, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Dr. Francis. And today, former President Donald Trump demanded that he be declared president nearly two years after he lost the election to Joseph Biden on his Truth social, uh, social media platform. Today, he tweeted out, So now it comes out conclusively that the FBI buried the Hunter Biden laptop story before the election, knowing that if they didn't, Trump would have easily won the 2020 presidential election. This is a massive fraud and election interference at a level never seen before in our country. Remedy, declare the rightful winner, or, and this would be the minimal solution, declare the 2020 election irreparably compromised and have a new election immediately. So 
This is the headline in the Huffington Post today, suggesting that Trump is losing it. What do you think? Well, I think there there are four ways of un- possible ways of understanding it. Uh, one is that he's just gone crazy, he's flipped out, and that the people who said that he was unfit to be a president because he, he was mentally deranged were right all along, and he's showing his true colors. That's one possibility. Second possibility is he's becoming demented, and demented people say dumb things, especially under stress. He's uh, had to live through losing, and he's a person who never was told from a young age that losing was akin to sin and that it was a combination of dementia and his disappointment and possible depression about that, that he's lost it on that basis. Um, I don't think, I think we can't rule out that he's either clinically psychotic or, or demented, but we can't rule it in. There's no information that says it has to be that. And I'm very suspicious of either of those interpretations. So there are two other interpretations that, that I think make more sense until we have more information to the contrary. The third and, and most likely interpretation is that this is Trump, that Trump has been saying absolutely outrageous and crazy things for the last 50 years, and he's been rewarded for them, that he doesn't get punished when he says stupid things. He doesn't get punished when he goes bankrupt. He doesn't get punished when um, he uh, told the country that John McCain was uh, not a patriot, that he likes heroes who aren't captured. He gets nominated and he gets elected president. And that this is a ploy, an effort on his part to stay relevant, to keep the, uh, the his troops uh, savoring blood, uh, to threaten the Justice Department with the fact that he'll say even more outrageous things that will get them out on the streets to threaten Merrill Garland to, to not to back off from any possible uh, indictment, and also maybe more important than anything to raise money. My guess is that day-to-day what he's most thinking about is how can I monetize my, my uh, celebrity and how can I get people to send me contributions? And uh, saying something outrageous will get a contribution. He's not that worried about being seen as crazy by us because to the audience he cares about that's a stimulus to, to support him even more strongly, which brings us to the fourth uh, explanation, and that is never underestimate how dumb the U.S. public can be. And uh, I think H.L. Mencken first said that. George, George Carlin put it another way, that um, think of how dumb the average person is and realize that half the people are even dumber. The Trump isn't playing to your audience. The things that sound absolutely absurd to you, to me, to people like us, uh, are arousing and, and, and create passion and adoration in his audience. And he's been saying the most outlandish things ever, ever since he went into uh, politics. And everything he says, every scandal that he gets into, confirms his intuition, his brilliant intuition, before the election, before the 2016 election, that I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and I would not lose any voters. He cannot say anything that sounds stupid enough or crazy enough that will discourage the people who love him. And that everything that he says that's crazy and stupid, if anything enrages them as he understands they will be enraged, gets them to, to send him contributions, keeps the politicians more disciplined, threatens the Merrick Garland of the world who are timid, and um, in, in the long run serves his best interests. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Alan Francis, a professor emeritus and former chair of psychiatry and behavioral science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference work, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, a psychiatrist analyzes the age of Trump, now out in an updated paperback version. So your book, Twilight of American Sanity, a psychiatrist analyzes the age of Trump, is not so much a psychoanalysis of Trump himself, but of the American people, and tries to explore why the American people, or at least a large percentage of them, support him. So is that the issue at hand then, that, as you mentioned, I mean, you didn't say it, but we are are becoming an idiocracy? Is that the essential problem? Yeah, and it's not that people are inherently dumb. It's that they've been dumbed down. The the, uh, major media 
have uh, been controlled now for about 40 years by um, the plutocrats, billionaires who have an interest in um, destroying government in order they can then control the direction of the country and not pay taxes and not be regulated. So it's not an accident that this has happened. Talk radio has been around for 40 or 50 years, spewing out misinformation, lies, and, and, and in some cases treasonous material um, that's believed by a substantial portion of the population. Today there was a survey out that showed that 40% of the American public think it's, it's not unlikely there'll be a civil war in this country within the next decade. And amongst Republicans, this is a really scary part, more than half of Republicans think that. So that the, uh, pu the public schools have failed, they've been underfunded and they have failed, and they've been overwhelmed by the kind of propaganda campaign carried out re with remarkable um, effectiveness and, and um, tremendous funding over the course of these last four decades. So I think we're headed for a disaster, and I think that there's no way at this point to convince people one way or another. Um, you're, this program will not convince someone who loves Trump that Trump is a crook. Uh, it, I think at this point, it's just really protecting the institutions of democracy such as they still exist. And the, the next election and the election after that, I think, will indeed determine the, the, uh, the fate of the country. That we are, uh, I said this in the book, and that was first written, five years ago that we were hair's breadth away from um, a fascist takeover in this country. And everything since has been much worse than even I anticipated then. I never imagined that Trump could get away with the things he's done with, with, with such adroitness. And that every time there's a scandal, somehow or other that increases his contributions, increases his loyalty, uh, the loyalty he commands amongst the, uh, his particular uh, constituency. And unless the votes are there, unless this is seen as an existential election, unless the votes are there, if we have in, in this next election a Congress that turns crazy, a um, in the next election a president who acts um, dictatorial, and a Supreme Court that's now in the dark ages, uh, this country's in grave trouble. And I think that it's not as if Trump dying today or being convicted today or being jailed today would change this trend line very much. That at this point, he's somewhat of an epiphenomenon and that DeSantis, for instance, would be worse because DeSantis is a lot smarter and better organized. So it's not like we defeat Trump and the world then returns to normal. We have a situation in which um, unless the, the, the um, institutions of democracy are strengthened, not just for this election, the next, but strengthened over the course of the ongoing future, unless the forces that are tearing the country apart and, and returning us to a dark age, unless, unless those forces are confronted strongly in a democratic way, then we will have uh, something not akin to civil war so much. Uh, it's not going to be the North versus the South because there's no geographical divide line. Um, almost every city in the South is democratic. It, it's more a uh, rural to, 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 to urban divide line. And the, the civil war will most likely be more that people with guns will be terrorizing people without guns. And we know which, which segment of the population has the guns and which segment doesn't. So, Dr. Alan Francis, do you think that the plutocracy, we know that the plutocracy have manipulate the American people and detach them from the normal political process that you would have in, say, in a social democracy where you pay your taxes and you get government services. We have a situation in this country where we don't have that transaction, uh, that politics is more about cultural matters like uh, abortion and guns, and that, that has been a process to detach people from the real process and the interest of what politics should be about. So to that extent, they've been very successful. And uh, you mentioned the collapse of public education has led to this dumbing down that makes it even easier for the plutocrats to turn working people against each other over race and class and cultural issues so that they don't see what they have in common, black, brown, white, etc., so that I understand, but do the plutocrats want American fascism? Yes. 
<laughs> I think that um, everyone should Google the John Birch Society, which started in the 50s as a, a reaction against American democracy. And the uh, Koch brothers' father was one of the 12 founders of it. And the um, program of the John Birch Society is the current Republican platform. Um, the, the William Buckley, who was the father of, theoretically the father of American conservatism, thought that the Birchers were too extreme, too weird to, to uh, be taken seriously. And he did everything in his power to squelch the John Birch movement. William Buckley was, we thought at the time, as conservative as anyone could be, but he would have been seen as a Republican in name only now because the Republican Party platform, the Republican Party way of operating is really out of the John Birch playbook. And what it amounts to is a fascist government that would be serving the interests of the billionaire class and doing it by using propaganda techniques to convince exactly, as you put it, working class people that their enemy are the um, are, are the people of color, gay, gays, people who get abortions, that that's the enemy, not the billionaire class, which is really turning this country very rapidly into kind of fascist oligarchy. So the answer then surely is that this election coming up in November is the last chance at American democracy. Is that your final well, word here? Well, we don't we don't know when the last chance is, but it's certainly a potential tipping point. And whether the last chance is 2022, 2024, 2026, 2028, we are that close, just as we are on climate, that close or past the tipping point. We are that close or past the tipping point for American democracy. And what this means is that everyone has to get involved. Everyone who, who thinks as we do, uh, not on every question, but just doesn't anyone who dis, dislikes fascism, as simple as that. Liz Cheney and I could not have less in common. But I, at this moment, Liz Cheney is, is a hero. Anyone who dislikes fascism, it has, it has to be a coalition of all the people who dislike fascism. That should be a very broad coalition. And unless people stand up for, for, the, for democracy, for what America has been, America will no more be in the future what it has been in the past. Well, Dr. Alan Francis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. I wish I could cheer you up, but I think we just make each other more depressed. <laughs> well, let's hope that that doesn't pass on to our audience. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Alan Francis, a professor emeritus and the former chair of psychiatry and behavioral science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference work, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, a psychiatrist. One analyzes. last word, Ian, in one last word. People can't afford to be depressed. I know people who have given up on this election. None of us can afford to be depressed about this, such that we don't do everything within our power, both in our sweat equity and in our dollars, to make sure that we don't lose democracy in this country. I couldn't agree more. And again, his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump, now out in an updated paperback version. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the origins of the current MAGA Republican radicalism. Democrats are right apart Across the blue white ocean Reagan's president-elect Fascist got in motion Generals tell him what to do Stop your good time dancing Train their guns on me and you Fascist ain't advancing Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nicole Hammer, who's an Associate Research Scholar with the Obama Presidency Oral History Project at Columbia University, a political historian specializing in media, conservatism, and the far right. She's the author of Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media and the Transformation of American Politics, and is also the co-founder and co-editor of Made by History, an historical analysis section of the Washington Post. And she co-hosts the weekly podcast, Past, Present. And her latest book out today is Partisans, the conservative revolutionaries who remade American politics in the 1990s. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nicole Hammer. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Nicole. And 
there are uh, you know not, not rumors of war but rumors of civil war out there with Senator Lindsey Graham recently saying on Fox News that if uh, Trump is indicted and put on trial for the documents down in uh, Mar-a-Lago there will be riots in the street and Trump himself through an intermediary sent a message to Merrick Garland the attorney general saying that the people out there are really angry what can I do to turn the temperature down, which is really kind of a mob boss uh, way of saying, you know, uh, <laughs> what a nice shop you have, all those beautiful antiques. It'd be a pity if somebody smashed them. So mm-hmm. that's what's happening in the country, and it's quite alarming. And the portent of civil war is being used as a political weapon. It is, and it is such an interesting comment from Lindsey Graham because riots in the streets are already something that we've seen from Trump followers. We saw it during the January 6th insurrection. And so the threat of political violence isn't just theoretical. It's not just rhetorical. It is something that has been wielded in the very recent past. And so I think that those comments should be taken quite seriously um, because they portend more of the same in the future. Well, Trump himself, I think, has a, a penchant for violence, maybe more of, of a wannabe mob boss than a real killer. I mean, his father apparently indoctrinated him, saying, son, you've got to be a killer, you've got to be a killer. You can't be a loser, and that is possibly why he's incapable of admitting that he lost the election. But back in, I think it was around 2016, when he was talking to a group of police officers in Suffolk County, New York, he told them not to let prisoners into the back of the car, you know, put your hand on the head, let them bang their heads against, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in rallies. He talked about, you know, going after protesters and hey, I'll pay for the court costs. And while the January the 6th insurrection was happening where these rioters were beating up police, he apparently was watching it, wouldn't do anything to stop it. And according to a number of people that witnessed it, He was actually enjoying what was happening. He was enjoying the mayhem and the bloodshed. And if you wanted to um, point to just another example, I mean, the embrace of vigilantism by the administration was pretty much in the forefront of it for quite some time. So, um, you know, Trump has praised uh, Ashley Babbitt, who was the rioter who was shot during the insurrection, Um, Kyle Rittenhouse, the St. Louis couple that brandished weapons during a Black Lives Matter protest, actually spoke at the 2020 Republican National Convention. So there is this real sense that lawlessness and violence, extra-legal violence, is something that Trump very strongly supports. And his his supporters have picked up on that message. Well, that is, of course, the, the underlying theme there is martyrdom. And your book takes us back to the 1990s, uh, where the militia movements were, were born. And much of that was, the underpinning of that was Ruby Ridge and Waco, was it not? This idea of martyrdom. It absolutely was. And I think one of the things that the book underscores when it talks about Ruby Ridge and Waco is that there was support for the militias and support for the anger and even to a certain extent the violence that accompanied the militia movement in the early 1990s. One of the figures that I talk about is Idaho Representative Helen Chenoweth, who represented the district that has Ruby Ridge in it. And she was constantly spreading militia conspiracy theories, um, working with militia members on her campaigns. And then after the Oklahoma City bombing, she didn't she didn't excuse the bombing, uh, but she did say, you know, there's a reason people are angry and the federal government has to act differently if it wants to do something about this kind of political violence. Um, so there there was a, a connection between the militias and the political violence of the 1990s and the Republican Party and conservative movement. And didn't she propagate the idea of the black helicopters? She did indeed. So black helicopter conspiracy theories were related to the idea of the UN and the federal government and the loss of national sovereignty. And she, in hearings, would ask members of the administration about 
black helicopters. And when they would push back, she would say, look, this is this is what my constituents are reporting. And so she would spread conspiracies like that, conspiracies about the UN taking over national parks in the United States, um, all sorts of things that were in line with the conspiracy theories that militias embraced. And it seems along with the, the thread of martyrdom, the other thread that's growing and is really metastasized now is this idea of white replacement. And you were there at Charlottesville, you were at the University of Virginia on the campus when the Tiki Torch March took place and they were chanting, the Jews will not replace us. And that event, Charlottesville, according to President Biden, that was the defining moment for him to run for the presidency. So do you see that as a parallel thread as well? Yes. I mean, the the violence in Charlottesville prefigures a lot of what we've seen in recent years, and it does have its roots in the politics of the 1990s. One of a pretty important book that comes out in 1995 is a book called Alien Nation by Peter Brimlow, who at the Times was a senior editor at Forbes and had written for National Review, um, but he now runs a white nationalist website called VDARE. Um, his book Alien Nation comes out, it's a, a pretty racist screed um, calling for more white immigration and less brown immigration. It has those threads of great replacement theory running through it. And Pat Buchanan, who has his second um, presidential bid in 1996, where he actually does better than he did in 1992, um, holds up alienation when he's on the campaign trail. He makes that idea of replacement, which he would develop much further in the years that followed um, in his campaign. So the 1990s really are important for understanding the uh, racist conspiracy theories behind some of the violence we're seeing today. And Buchanan, of course, ran against George H.W. Bush, and uh, he was significant enough that Bush gave him a slot at the convention, <laughs> which was a huge mistake, right? That's right. And it's 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 interesting to look back at a figure like George H.W. Bush, who is considered, I think rightly so, a more moderate Republican, somebody who represented a different strain within the conservative movement than someone like Pat Buchanan. But Bush in 1992 was courting all of these figures. As you mentioned, Pat Buchanan had a primetime spot at the Republican National Convention in 1992. But Bush also was working closely with Rush Limbaugh, inviting him to the White House because he wanted to to gain his support as he went into the 1992 general election. So there are ways that folks who, even though they didn't agree with the politics of this more radicalizing grievance-driven right in the 1990s were nonetheless aiding and abetting them. And again, I'm speaking with Nicole Hammer, who's an associate research scholar with the Obama Presidency Oral History Project at Columbia University and the author of Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media and the Transformation of American Politics. And her latest book out today is Partisans, the Conservative Revolutionaries Who Remade American Politics in the 1990s. And do you think that George W. Bush is a sort of the vestiges of the Republican Party that he represented, this very precious little of it left, right, except maybe, is it, would it be Liz Cheney? I mean, is there any anything left over from the traditional Republicans? Even, even the Reagan Republicans are hard to find nowadays. There are bits and pieces, and George W. Bush in uh, the 2000s, in many ways he tried to resurrect many of the strands of Reaganism. He called it at the time compassion and conservatism um, that was um, kinder and more open to immigration, that had this um, at least rhetorically democracy-driven foreign policy. But of course, what you saw was the um, the sort of driving into the ground of all of those ideas with the financial collapse, with the debacle in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, with the un inability to help or unwillingness to help in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. So there were all of these ways in which Bush was trying to uh, resurrect the Reaganism of the party, but ended up disproving it in the process. And that really did make it possible for kind of this Buchananite wing of the party to gain real power in the 20-teens. Well, just in terms of what Buchanan said in 1992 at the Republican convention where George W. Bush got the nomination, he said, call for a religious war and announced that 
Block by block, my friends, we will take back our cities and take back our culture and take back our country. And because he ran on an American first platform, that's talk about echoes of today. I mean, isn't the circle complete now? This is what the militia movements and what the Trump MAGA people are all about now is take back our country. It's based on this idea that I guess it's a part of white replacement, but the idea that somehow the country's been taken from us. So is it is that simple that the black and brown people have taken the country from the white people? What is this thread that has gone from Buchanan to Trump? Well, that's a that's a pretty big part of it. But I think one of the other things that that quote taps into is this idea of a revolutionary conservatism, a conservatism that doesn't mean to conserve, but means to overthrow. And Buchanan, he has that line in the um, convention speech in 92. By 1996, the symbol of his campaign is the pitchfork. People are calling him Pitchfork Pat. And it is this idea that there needs to be a, a revolution, not just against Democrats and liberals, but against the Republican establishment as well. And that kind of revolutionary fervor, one that isn't, again, just rhetorical, but actually um, sets the stage for political violence, is one that is going to gather steam in the conservative movement in the years that follow. And the election of Donald Trump metastasizes that. But the uh, the ideas and the politics had been developing for you know 15 years by the time Donald Trump shows up. So you have a combination now of owning the libs and hatred of uh, of the rhinos. So that those threads have metastasized. But what has happened then when Biden is trying to make the distinction between the MAGA Republicans and the traditional Republicans that he worked with in the Senate? And a few days ago at a fundraiser, he told the MAGA Republican semi-fascist, which has outraged a lot of Republicans. But he may develop that theme further on a speech that he's going to give on Thursday night. But what is this situation now where it seems that all of the GOP, and I'm talking about McConnell and others who are clearly unhappy with Trump, they bought into voter suppression. So what's the compact? The radicals are driving a kind of one-party state or towards semi-fascism, as, as Biden said. But the rest of the party seems to be on board with this enormous amount of voter suppression that's happening now. And you've got a model for the party being the Hungarian dictator who Tucker Carlson fawns over. So I'm trying to figure out what's happening here in terms of the threads that we're talking about, the radical thread that's taken over and the traditional kind of carcass the vestiges of which are in Liz Cheney. I I think one way to talk about it is to talk about the capitulation of that more traditional wing of the Republican Party to this more radical wing. And you see that in Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney is not alone in her beliefs when it comes to uh, politics and and conservatism, Um, but she is more or less alone in her willingness to defend democracy and in her willingness to also call out the For now, we'll call it the semi-fascism that is present in the Republican Party. She really is out there on her own, and you can see that in the ways that she's been stripped of leadership roles, um, her loss in her her primary uh, just a, a month or so ago. And there are plenty of Republicans who are not true believers in this more violent and radicalized version of conservatism, but they certainly are enablers of it. And Joe Biden has a little bit of nostalgia, I think, for um, a a more functional Republican Party. But it's also fair to say that um, these enablers have been enabling a more radical strain of conservatism, even in the days that Joe Biden was uh, was in the Senate. And in his language of semi-fascism, I think you're beginning to see him putting those pieces together. I think he understands what's happened to the Republican Party, and I think we'll hear more about that on Thursday when he speaks. But do you think that there's a way to stop at least the takeover of the MAGA Republicans? If they, if these stop the steal election deniers or election liars who have run for key positions as secretaries of state in 10 states, many of which are key swing states, if they win in November, that's the beginning, the end of American democracy, you could argue. 
I don't understand why the Democrats aren't, you know, on a full fire alarm, their hair on fire, making the point that if you don't vote in November, it may be the last chance you get to vote because <laughs> the die is cast here, isn't it? These people aren't fooling around. They've made it clear what they plan to do. I, I don't think that we should anticipate change coming from the Republican Party. Um, the Republican Party has had many sort of come to Jesus moments over the past uh, few decades, and they have not answered that call when it comes to defending democracy. I think that the Democrats are torn in many ways between making the case that fascism is on the march and voting for the Republican Party enables the advance of, of those ideas and anti-democratic politics. And at the same time, knowing that they have to provide materially for the American people and make their lives better if they want to have any hope of winning the vote of Americans in, in November, this November and in two years from now in the presidential election. Um, so I think that there's a toggling back and forth between pointing out the dangers of the Republican Party, but then also making sure that there are affirmative good things that they are doing and that they're letting people know that they're doing um, so that they not only are saying don't vote for Republicans, but you actually have a, a good reason to vote for us. And that I think is some of the mixed messaging that we're hearing because they're trying to speak to those those two different ideas. Well, Nicole Hammer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Nicole Hammer, who's an Associate Research Scholar with the Obama Presidency Oral History Project at Columbia University, a political historian specializing in media conservatism and the far right. She's the author of Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media and the Transformation of American Politics. And she's also the co-founder and co-editor of Made by History, the historical analysis section of the Washington Post. And she co-hosts the weekly podcast Past Present. And her latest book out today is Partisans, the conservative revolutionaries who remade, who remade American politics in the 1990s. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of the Ukrainian offensive underway in the South and of the state of U.S. intelligence. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Douglas London, a retired senior CIA operations officer and a professor at Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies. Over the course of his 34 years in the CIA's clandestine service, almost 17 of which were in the foreign field as a recruiter and agent handler, he served in the Middle East, South and Central Asia, and Africa, including three assignments of chief of station the President's Senior Intelligence Officer at Post and the Chief of Base in a South Asian conflict zone. And he's the author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. Welcome to Background Briefing, Douglas London. Nice, nice to be with you today. Well, thanks for joining us. And in terms of uh, what's happening in, in Ukraine, there's an offensive for the Ukrainians to retake Kherson, which the Russians captured early on in the war, apparently, largely due to treachery on the part of um, Ukrainian of officials in Kherson. But it's hard to get a picture on it. Do you, do you have any updates on what's happening? The Russians are saying the Ukrainians are suffering heavy casualties. The Ukrainians are saying they're breaking through some of the Russian lines. But the Russians have had months to prepare their defenses. Well, the uh, the narrative is going to be key in this for both the Ukrainians and the Russians who are sending a message to their domestic population to retain and, and increase support. The Ukrainians are, are suffering heavy losses, no doubt, that uh, that remain unreported. And the Russians, though, I think are comparably suffering a greater percentage of losses, which is typical when an army is on the offensive. Uh, the Russians, uh, just from what we can see publicly, have had to throw uh, continuing flows of irregular troops, everything from uh, mercenaries to folks in the, the ethnic peripheries of 
of their country and older folks. They've increased the age of those who can fight. There's been speculation and some observations that there's convicts involved. I mean, without getting into the dramatic or hyperbole, both both those countries are taking losses, but the Ukrainians clearly have the stronger will to fight and the motivation and are less likely to um, stop their efforts. I think the offensive or counteroffensive to the south is uh, reflects a continuing part of their strategic aptitude to use both a regular warfare and an effort to force the Russians to defend such a long line when it's actually the Russians who are trying to be the aggressor here. So we'll see how it plays out. I think the Ukrainians feel a greater sense of urgency than Putin does, but I think Putin's sense of having time on his side is misplaced. And why do you say that? Putin's calculus is that uh, the West, particularly the United States, will, will ultimately become exhausted in terms of not just its span of attention, but obviously the resources that it's applying to this conflict as, as it believes the same being with the Europeans. And that's particularly um, keen in his mind in terms of energy. But to, to be, um, you know, uh, an, an observer here and what's actually going on and the history that Putin is using in shaping his calculations, I think it's um, one, an oversimplification, and it's falsely cast based partially on his ideological beliefs and the differences between Russia and, and the West. Um, I think he still harbors a lot of the old Soviet communist doctrine from his many years in the, the KGB uh, at the height of the Cold War, really. And he's also been basing so many of his decisions on intelligence that we now expect and suspect to have been quite questionable. Clearly, he uh, miscalculated the resolve of the West, the degrees to which they would go in terms of sanctions and their willingness to sacrifice, as we have collectively in terms of energy. The United States has been putting an amazing amount of money in terms of economic, military aid, and and resources dedicated to supporting the greater effort. And yet he still has been doubling down, which I don't really think he has much choice to do because of his investment in his, not just his legacy, but his staying power as leader of, of the Russian Federation. And does Putin have a problem with the nationalists to the right of him, like the supposed successor, Nikolai Petrushev? But given what just happened with the assassination of uh, Daria Dugina and her father did the eulogy on they they had a, f a funeral on state TV in the biggest studio that the Russian state TV has which was a huge sort of propaganda event at which her father said that you know the first word she said when she, she was a baby was Russia Mir you know the Russian world and empire and I'm just wondering whether they're they're out on the right sort of causing Putin some problems because they're calling for, they're saying, which a lot of conservatives in this country said during the Vietnam War that we're fighting the war with one hand tied behind their back. That's the the narrative coming from Russian nationalists on, on state TV that we've got to take the gloves off. And as far as I can tell, Putin's taken the gloves off. He just doesn't have the military resources or the or the morale and will to achieve his ends in the Ukraine. Um, and, and first of all, just to to to, read, to circle back, uh, Nikolai Petrushev, who's his national security advisor, but it's a much different position than it is in the United States. Petrushev is both Putin's greatest ally and probably his greatest threat. If there's any individual who could overthrow Putin based on their power and control. It would be Petrushev, but I, I don't see that necessarily happening. I think there are most certainly two peas in a pod. Petrushev succeeded Putin as a director of FSB when Putin cast his lot in the political fray and became prime minister and, and then ultimately president. Um, so I, I think his sense of confidence in Petrushev is probably uh, reasonable, though I certainly would would like to see some some concern there that maybe uh, U.S. intel operations could help further because there's some reason to be. In terms of the nationalists, I think it's, it's pretty well scripted. Um, Putin would gain from 
this um, perception of pressure on him to do more as if he's been holding back. Uh, Putin has been holding back somewhat. He's been holding back a bit and calling this a special military operation and not calling up reserves and not, you know, increasing the draft uh, and not making this a national mobilization, uh, which he has. But I think he would love the appearance that his own people are pushing him to do it. So I, I truly don't see the, the 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 noise coming from the nationalists as being isolated in a vacuum and not without proper coordination with Putin's people. This is being pretty much orchestrated by the FSB. That's who he's relying on, the National uh, Intelligence Service, which is more than just that. I mean, it does a lot more than that. It was also responsible for waging the war in um in the Ukraine, uh, in Ukraine as it was in Chechnya, but uh, with uh, far poorer results. And its purpose has really been to keep him in power and put down any threats. So they do a lot of the um, counter-influence and covert influence and the propaganda and disinformation, particularly that touching the home front. So I don't see him being forced by the nationalists. I, I certainly see this being scripted to give him the option if he wants to say, you know what, I do have to take off the gloves and I do have to launch all out attacks, use weapons of mass destruction, God forbid, uh, and just really uh, not go beyond the doubling down he's already been doing because there is more he could do. I mean, he's certainly targeted civilians consciously because that plays into the strategy on a number of fronts. He wants to, one, break down the will of the Ukrainians, but also refugee flows, economic problems, starvation are all pressures on the government that will distract them from the military fight. So I think we still have some room, unfortunately, for him to go. And I think this narrative about the nationalists play into it. And and just, you know, one more point on that. As far as who uh, conducted that assassination, you know, I'm not entirely certain it would be the Ukrainians because it's inconsistent with their strategy. Uh, their attacks have been primarily on military targets, particularly in Russian territory. Uh, within their own territory, they've attacked their own collaborators or Russian installed officials. But there had to be a lot of work in this operation. They had to be surveilling and casing uh, their target for a period of time to establish a pattern of life that they could take advantage. So it's either really poorly done if they were looking for the father, which maybe, maybe he would have been a more valid military target. But still, it, to me, it's not consistent with what the Ukrainians have been doing. Whether it's a false flag, well, Putin's done that before. Remember the bombings uh, in Moscow apartment buildings at the turn of the century, which he used to galvanize support for going into Chechnya. Uh, or uh, an independent Russian group is possible, but I'm really not in a position to do anything more than speculate, but I'm not so certain this was the Ukrainians. And the independent Russian group, the only evidence we have on that is uh, from Ilya Pomeranov, uh, former Russian MP, who was from this Soviet kind of aristocratic dynasty, if you will, and he fled in Moscow some time ago when he criticized the annexation of Crimea. He's apparently in Ukraine, and he's saying that he, the assassination was conducted by the National Republican Army, and of course NRA. <laughs> I don't know I don't know what to make of that, whether there's such a thing or whether that's Pomerinov's uh, own fantasy, that there's this kind of anti-fascist partisan movement somewhere in Russia. Do you have any inkling of that? You know, the, the war has set off a lot of forces, and, and as wars do, and there's always second and third order consequences that one cannot control. Even Putin is with as much control as he has domestically. The the ongoing violence, the increase in repression, Putin's continued uh, clampdown on freedom of expression, on, on journalism, on human rights, people apparently disappearing, according to social media, who criticize him or you know, suspiciously fall off of uh, apartment building roofs or out of windows. That sets a lot of people forward. And, and I've commented before, it also helps, you know, the Western intelligence services because people often need a precipitating crisis. There are lots of folks who aren't happy with what they do. There's people everywhere who's unhappy at work or with their boss or have great pressures. But when there's a precipitating crisis, it sometimes sets the match and this war in Ukraine might very well have set the match for those who are post-Putin for political reasons, for based on their own 
ethnic affiliation or regional affiliation or politics. So I don't think we've seen the end of uh, where that fuse is going to take us. And I certainly can't rule out that there will be acts of violence by indigenous Russian elements who will either take advantage of the circumstances or simply react from it as a crisis uh, that has really allowed them or encouraged them to cross the Rubicon. So let's, in the last few minutes, Douglas London, talk about your book, The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. Not so much the lost art, but the lost assets and resources. My understanding is that the U.S., uh, during the Trump administration, has suffered enormous losses of intelligence sources, particularly in China, but also in Russia. Is there any indication of how that happened? Well, spying doesn't come without significant risks. These are these are people and, and lives, and tradecraft has to evolve. Um, when I wrote my book, which was still during the time of the Trump administration and uh, under which I really felt compelled to leave the agency after 34 plus years because it became untenable there. I tried to juxtapose the agency pre 9/11 with post 9/11. So it's not all it's not all Trump. It really was a cultural shift in the agency in focusing itself so exclusively on counterterrorism, which moved it away somewhat from traditional foreign intelligence, from this self-characterization uh, and focus as an elite spy service. You need to constantly invest in tradecraft, particularly with technology. And there's always evolutions of technology. You know, the development of the telephone changed uh, espionage, just as computers and internet and such like that. And now we have artificial intelligence and biometrics and ubiquitous technical surveillance with cities, even in the developing world, completely wired with cameras where one can see wherever you go and everyone's carrying a tracker in their cell phone and goodness knows refrigerators and microwaves have have Wi-Fi these days. So I tried to outline the, the life of the case officer, the life of a spy, the life and the relationship with agents and, and with colleagues as well in showing a, a change from pre-9-11 to post-9-11 that shifted the agency away from focus on foreign espionage and, and unfortunately might have led to an underinvestment in the evolution of its tradecraft. I've been encouraged by what I've seen since the changeover administration, since the arrival of Director uh, William Burns, who from everything I've seen, at least outwardly, has been much more focused on moving the agency away from its kinetic, lethal, covert action focus, still doing a bit of that. Clearly, it's it's evident in Ukraine, but really focusing it as a spy service. And the, the number of intelligence reports that the agency and the rest of the community declassified clearly reflect a human component, um, particularly when you look at the confidence level, which gives you a clue that there's more than one stream of intelligence, that it's not just technical, not just human intelligence, which shows they're back in business. It, it, it's going to take some time, but from what I've seen, they are back on the path to making their primary mission that of being a spy service and you know, an, an, an elite analytics service and doing covert action where it's necessary, where it's not the easy button, where it's not just they do it well and they're going to do it instead of the military doing it overtly because they're good at you know drones or something like that. So I'm reasonably optimistic going forward. Well, just a couple of days ago, I had um, Gregory Trevedan on the program. He was uh, he was the chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017, and uh, we were talking obviously about what went on at Mar-a-Lago and and what a counterintelligence nightmare it is to have all those top secret documents down there in the least uh, secure place imaginable. We did also talk about his concerns that he's always had about. Trump and about his relationship with Putin, which is still very opaque and never really, you know, the Mueller report never got to the bottom of it. And we still don't really know about it. And he, he was saying when you combine the concerns about Trump's relationship with Putin with what happened down in Mar-a-Lago, you really do have a serious problem. So this is pretty unprecedented. The very fact that you're even questioning the loyalty of an American president, uh, that's almost bizarre, but it's happening right now. 
Well, there's certainly a lot of uh, events over the past few years that I never in my life as a, as a CIA officer thought I would ever see. Things I saw overseas, uh, generally in autocratic nations, but not that I'd see in, in my own country. So there there is reason to be concerned about the documents of Mar-a-Lago, not least of which is their sensitivity. I mean, what type of intelligence reports go to the president? Obviously, the most sensitive ones. Obviously, those with our most sophisticated and sensitive means of collection. And even among finished intelligence reports, those that are really the bottom line of what's going on, the human that's included, the that that comes from uh, agents and spies, has to be put in context, which offer a great deal of clues, because human intelligence is worthless without context. And that context is, what do we know about our source? How reliable is our source? What's their access, their placement, their motivation, and have they been proven right? All those clues would point an adversary to narrow down what's already a small circle of people, because again, this is information going to the president, so it's going to be the most sensitive, and usually the smallest circle of people in any given place have access to the most sensitive information. So if we're looking at the, the best possibility that this is mishandling, uh, that's bad, because in the intel world, anything that's classified, you maintain under your positive control. You either it's in a vaulted area, in a skiff, as we've, we've seen talked about, or it's under the control of a cleared official who never lets it out of his sight. When I'd go for briefings at the White House or on Capitol Hill, we had to carry anything that was classified in a locked bag that me and the security people only had the keys to. So at a minimum, this information got out of control. And who knows who had access to it? And who knows who laid their hands and eyes on it? Moving to the worst case, you know, Trump didn't keep these documents for trophies, for souvenirs. Maybe the letter from President Obama, maybe his correspondence with the North Korean leader, but imagery, uh, reports on Macron, uh, some speculation that's reports on nuclear capabilities that I've seen routed about in, in the press. He did this for a transactional purpose. He did this to do something with it. And to me, that's pretty troubling. I, I participated in the um, counterintelligence aftermath of Snowden as one of the senior officers on a panel. But at least, you know, you knew it was worst case. You, you knew what he'd done with it. You don't know what President, former President Trump was doing with this, what he planned to do with it. And that's rather disconcerting. Well, Douglas London, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been my great pleasure, Ian. Thanks for having me on. And again, I'll be speaking with Douglas London, who's a retired senior CIA operations officer and an associate professor at Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies. He, over the course of his 34 years in the CIA's clandestine service, almost 17 of which were in the foreign field as a recruiter and an Asian handler, he served in the Middle East, South Asia, and Central Asia, and Africa, including three assignments as chief of station, the president's senior intelligence officer at post, and the chief of base in a South Asian conflict zone, and he's the author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the free
Sunday.